Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. You'll have to bear with me. I'm getting used to a new version of Skype, um, so I'm going to have to add everybody to the call. But today we're going to be reading from Jack Reed's book, um, The Next Evolution. Um, and I, basically I had to call back to Blog Talk. I had originally already had my callers on, but I've never connected a blog talk with this uh, new version of Skype before, so it kind of slowed everything down. So let me go ahead and um, get everybody on here, and then we'll get started. Um, thanks to, thank you, everybody. I know that I've been gone for a little while. Uh, there's some things going on in my personal life I don't really care to get into, but suffice it to say, uh, as is typical, I don't do a show unless I feel that I can give you guys the same kind of you know, mental you know, clarity and quality that you've come to expect from B-Radio. So... Um, in any case, uh, that's the reason why it's been so long since I uh, have done a show. And you should see a pickup here really soon. And uh, with any luck, everything will be working out. Thanks to the generous donations from some people, we're almost totally finished uh, with the uh, upgrades of the computer. And um, I was able to do a little bit of Zeitgeist TV recently, which was great. Uh, I'm also going to be appearing on a... TV slash radio show here pretty soon, uh, on the 7th. I'll get you more details about that soon, uh, but it's thanks to uh, one of my connections in the uh, Mike Gravel campaign, and uh, definitely looking forward to that. So I've almost got everybody here. I just had to try to find Thunder, and uh, it looks like, there we go. Got everybody. I'm going to go hit OK, and let's see how this works out. Hello. Hello, Joel. Okay. I'm there. Excellent. Still ringing. What's what's the name of Jack's book so I can look it up online? The Next Evolution. Okay. Look it up under communityplanet.org. Okay. I have a feeling that Thunder probably forgot about coming on today. So, go ahead and deal with it. If he calls me back, I'll add him. All right, folks. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your patience today. Uh, this is going to be a great show, I'm sure of it. We did one show already where we were um, evaluating Mr. Reed's book. Um, and, of course, I'm sure many of you remember the, uh, the show where I brought Mr. Reed on. So, first, I'm going to... Um, Introduce my panelists. I'm going to start with uh, the brand new panelist, uh, Daniel Moreland. Please introduce yourself. Tell them, you know, the listeners about how you learned about the Zeitgeist movement um, and what your experiences have been so far, and uh, also how you learned about V Radio. Um, hello. Is my audio transmitting at all? Yeah, you sound great. Yeah. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't see a bar or anything. Um, well, I've been. Um, in an active phase for probably just at the two-month mark. Um, I watched Zeitgeist Addendum, and I thought it made an enormous amount of sense. Um, and uh, as I read more into it uh, on the forums and started listening to, uh, I started off listening to, um, uh, oh dear, Peter Joseph's um, bi-weekly radio addresses, and he was kind of going into the um, uh, nitty-gritty of it, and I started to understand his way of thinking, and I realized that it made an awful lot of sense. And then um, I stumbled upon uh, 
the V radio when I um, uh, looked through the blog talk radio when I started listening to uh, V radio and I started downloading several of those to my iPod and listening and yeah I, I've heard the past show with Jack Reed and I'm very very excited to uh, to uh, hear what he's going to be saying tonight and uh, learning more about this book. <laughs> if there was something else you were wanting me to mention, I can. Oh, sorry about that. That was my yeah. fault. Um, I actually was muted. You tell oh. I'm rusty now. Um, well, um, that being said, uh, Jack, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? You never know when there's a new listener out there who hasn't heard of you yet. Hi. Um, I am the director of the Community Planet Foundation, and um, if you heard the last show or you didn't, a group of us met for a couple of years and put together a vision of a community that would actually have the potential to transform the planet. So that's the work that I do, and um, that's what I'm dedicated to. Yeah, excellent, actually. I've been reading a lot of your book, and um, it seems like uh, you and Jacques are on the same wavelength on a lot of different issues. Um, and that actually uh, brings me to Joel. Um, you work for the Venus Project. We've had you on a previous show. Go ahead and introduce yourself and talk about how you learned about the Venus Project. Uh, yeah, hi, Neil. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you great. Okay, great. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, uh, my name's Joel Holt, and I'm kind of chief cook and bottle washer in the office here while they're away, <laughs> uh, handling uh, whatever needs to be handled around here. I, I, I heard about the Venus Project many, many years ago in a book. Uh, but it didn't stick, and I, 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 I really uh, got my fire lit about all this uh, by, obviously, uh, Zeitgeist Addendum. Uh, I'd seen Peter's first film, actually, when it first came out, too, but it didn't stick very much either. So uh, uh, here, here I am. I've been here about almost a year working at the Venus Project. Now, um, just curious, uh, you said that it didn't stick initially. What, what do you think uh, would change that for you? When did it stick? Well, you know, really when it changed for me was that I don't know if it was the message that, that it was portrayed as much as I was ready to hear it at that particular time. I had just lost a lot of uh, uh, situation in my life. I lost a couple of uh, properties. I had some real estate, and a couple of houses in Hawaii, and that all just kind of went bust. And I went from one year being, you know, pretty flush to the next year being on food stamps. <laughs> So wow. it was awful. Yeah, it was terrible, terrible. So it took something like that to make you realize that maybe the monetary system is not really <laughs> taking care of everybody, huh? Yeah, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that's the case. I, I have to think so. Well, um, once again, I'm glad to have everybody on tonight. Uh, I think Thunder probably forgot, but uh, if he does come in later, I'll, I'll add a re-add him to the call. Um, I had already started reading some of the book. I didn't actually finish the chapter I was in, but I have to say, Jack, a lot of the statistics that you quote here were just, you know, amazing. They were just blowing me away, you know, with just how terrible the situation is. I don't think that, you know, because, like, Peter in his films can't really cover everything in the kind of detail that you have here because it's a book. Um, you know, like some of the, the stuff that you talked about, about the toxins, and uh, you further elaborated on... Um, like stuff that uh, I don't know. Do you know Annie Lennard? Have you ever you ever watched the story of stuff, Jack? Oh uh, yeah, really great, entertaining video. 
Right. And, I mean, it's basically you kind of gave the real statistics about how because she talks about human breast milk being, you know, really toxic. And you talked about, like, there's something here in your book you linked about that not only is it bad, that if it was a product, it wouldn't even be allowed. <laughs> yeah, and, and the statistics in my book are now about 10 years old. So whatever I wrote about, it's far worse now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. But um, I guess um, I'll go ahead and launch back into this. Uh, I believe I left off at page 29. Um, if you guys, basically what the format here is for the panelists is I read from the book and I pause from time to time and during that time everybody will get an opportunity to come on and give their opinions. Um, because I am reading a whole chapter, if there's anything that you want to bring up, you know, make notes to yourself about it. Don't lose your thoughts. They're important. That's why I have panelists. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also obviously for you, Jack, since you know that this information is older, if there's any kind of updates that you want to bring up on any information in here, you know, don't hesitate to let us know. So, The only thing that I would say is that um, anybody listening to the show, they pretty much know what, what the problems are or else they wouldn't be listening. So very little of my book is about what the problems are. It's, it's just so easy to be a critic. What's needed are solutions, and most of the book is about solutions. So uh, if you're going to read from the book, I'd just recommend that you at least start later than Chapter 2. Oh, well, we were going through it. I think, though, that it's like, honestly, though, there is a benefit to knowing how bad things are because it kind of gives you a motivation. It's like if you, if you don't really grasp how bad it is, then you don't really – I mean, there's a lot of people who kind of need to be shaken out of their American Idol lifestyle, and it's not going to happen unless they really understand the numbers involved. But generally when we're going over a book, we, we just kind of go through the whole thing. So we definitely will, and um, we're definitely going to get into the rest of it. It's, it's been very popular. So, um, But that being said, um, let me go ahead and start up again here. And um, if you guys want to mute your microphones while I'm reading, that might be – uh, a good idea. Just remember to undo it when we uh, get started. So. In any case, um, another life-threatening concern is polluted water. Daily, uh, daily, at least 15,000 of our world's people die from drinking unsafe water. Even in the United States, the EPA has identified 495 waterways, 10% of our rivers, streams, and bays as being heavily contaminated by toxins. 42 million Americans drink water dangerously high in lead not to mention other unsafe chemicals found in almost all tap drinking water. The National Resources Defense Council's estimate from a study of the data from over 100 water utilities in the United States was even higher. Their 1995 study reported that over 100 million Americans were drinking contaminated water. In some cases, the water is even more harmful to shower in and breathe in than it is to drink. America also annually dumps 5 trillion gallons of industrial waste directly into coastal waters along with 2.3 trillion gallons of sewage. Because as you remember, I'd much rather be a body surfing in the ocean than writing this book. These facts especially affect me as Los Angeles' Santa Monica Bay, for example, is so polluted that one of the lifeguard supervisors advised me that the water in the bay was unsafe to swim in. But these are small problems compared to the 2 billion people in the world who have no sanitation service at all and the 1.8 billion who lack access to safe drinking water. Contaminated water, food, and air is affecting all life on the planet. The insidious man-made chemical toxins are believed to be in the tissues of every living thing on Earth, says Steve Holliday, an 
immunotoxicologist at Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, quote, we're probably all, and I mean the whole doggone planet, immunosuppressed, end quote. Much like what we're seeing happen with the other species, our immune systems are being suppressed by toxins, and we are losing our ability to fight off infections. Eventually, we could see mass epidemics from common diseases that our human bodies were once healthy enough to fend off. Now that scientific studies are making us more aware of the damaging effects of pollutants on life forms, we will in the next decade see an abundance of really scary results of the legacy of our unthinking pollution. Think about it. If Libya or Iraq were raging this kind of chemical warfare against us, we would absolutely without hesitation bomb them into submission. But instead it's us, our industries and our consumer choices doing it to us slowly, but surely, as we allow the unconscionable slow poisoning of all life on the planet. There are over 70,000 chemicals we use regularly and 20 new chemical compounds enter the marketplace untested every day. Although we know a lot about the harm from some of these chemicals, we have complete data on only 2% and almost no data on 79%. We're treating nature and our bodies like a chemistry experiment gone bad. We mix in one toxic substance with other chemicals, some also toxic, and then wonder if we can get away with the resulting chemical reactions. The trouble with our experiments is that they have gone on far too long without proper monitoring and the results have often been insidiously subtle, like the poisoning of the Inuits. And then finally, when we see the results, we seem helpless to rectify the situation because of the economics involved. The livestock connection. Most of our farmland is used to produce food for the livestock that supply meat and dairy, the overconsumption of which is directly responsible for the very high rate of heart disease in the United States. These animals have no way to eliminate the pesticides they ingest from feed and the growth hormones they're given. So when we consume non-organic animal protein, we are also getting a very concentrated dose, a dose of these poisons. But perhaps the most damaging aspect of our fascination with meat and dairy relates in a way to one of the world's really serious health problems, malnutrition and starvation. According to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, two in five of the world's population are malnourished and nearly one in six people suffer from an acute and chronic hunger. In the United States, the number of people suffering from hunger rose from 20 to 30 million between 1985 and 1992, according to the Tufts University School of Nutrition. About 60 million people in the world starve to death yearly. Some people make global correlations of those numbers with our meat and dairy consumption to, sorry, I'm going to go forward a couple pages there, point out that if Americans cut back their meat consumption by even 10%, we could adequately feed 100 million more people per year. Did you know that the production of meat, dairy, and eggs uses one-third of the total raw materials used by all sources in the United States? That 70% of America's grain, 50% of all of our water, and half of our energy consumption goes for livestock production, and that every pound of grain-fed beef costs us 35 pounds of topsoil? Because we import much of our meat from Central and South America, we could also help the rainforest situation since much of the forests are being destroyed to raise cattle for export. The Rainforest Action Network reports that each pound of Central American beef permanently destroys over 200 square feet of rainforest, and that in just 20 years, Costa Rica, for example, destroyed 80% of its tropical rainforest for cattle production. Before globalization, most third world countries were self-sufficient in their food production. Now most of the third world not only has to import food, 
but 75% of those imports are for corn, grain, and sorghum that are fed not to people, but to livestock. Then the livestock are either expected to uh, exported to the U.S. and another and other first world countries are con or consumed by the affluent few in the poor countries. Because less and less farmland is available to grow staples for the masses, the poor suffer. As the World Watch Institute reported, quote, in the economic com competition for grain fields, the upper classes usually win, end quote. In another quote by John Robbins, in country after country, the demand for meat among the rich squeezing out staple uh, is squeezing out staple production for the poor. In addiction, by reducing our meat consumption, we can conserve our diminishing water resources. It takes about 100 gallons of water produced to produce just one pat of butter. Producing just one American, I'm sorry, producing just one pound of meat takes 2,500 gallons, the amount of water a typical American household uses for an entire month. We could float a destroyer with the water it takes to produce just 1,000 uh, 1, pound steer. As former U.S. Senator Paul Simon warned, it is no exaggeration to say that the conflict between humanity's growing thirst and the projected supply of usable, potable water could result in the most devastating natural disaster since history has been recorded accurately, unless something happens to stop it. A truly free market could solve this if the cost of water to produce beef was not subsidized. The cost to produce the cheapest cut of hamburger would cost us $35 a pound. Nothing will, this is from Albert Einstein, nothing will benefit human health and increase the chances for survival on Earth like as much as the evolution to a vegetarian diet. Diminishing the health care. An estimated 1.8 billion people have no access to basic health care. Even in the United States, health care is in crisis. With skyrocketing prices, many who don't need it can't get it. When I worked for a rehabilitation agency, I had several clients with debilitating physical ailments who slipped through the cracks in terms of treatment. One woman was virtually immobilized for years by constantly painful dental cavities. I tried for months to help her, only to find that unless her ailment was life-threatening, no medical coverage was available. Try functioning daily with, that, daily with that much pain in your head. Our health care is becoming more and more a program for the wealthy where the poor don't get served. In the 1980s, the cost of health care increased 25% per year. This trend caused company-sponsored health care plans to rapidly diminish. Since the government cannot seem to agree on what we can do with, about this, soon only those who can afford the rapidly increasing out-of-pocket expenses may have coverage. As government subsidies to health care on state and federal levels are reduced, hospitals are forced to take some patients at a loss. However, the costs are passed on to insurance companies and those who can afford to pay more, and that's driving up the costs. Now Medicare and Medicaid benefits are being cut too, but even if we eventually go to the socialized medicine, that would have to depend on tax dollars and no one has wanted to pay it. And even if we go that route, many needed services will not be available to the middle class, let alone the poor. I knew a working woman who found herself feeling overly tired. When she went to her HMO doctors over the course of two years, they gave her 10 minutes per visit that they felt they had available and told her that her condition was stress and that she was just run down. Without ever taking a blood sample, the doctors eventually had her on three different antibiotics. Finally, she felt so bad that she went to a hospital emergency room on Sunday. They did blood work and found that she had leukemia. She died on Tuesday. Her fate is a chilling example of the current state of our health care. Grotesquely, the managed care system itself was successful. 
they kept their costs down. The economy. In the developing world today, there are 3 billion people living in poverty. Of those, 1.3 billion live in absolute poverty. We're not talking about what is defined as poverty in the United States. We're talking about absolute, abject poverty, where people can't meet the basic needs of food, safe drinking water, and shelter, and where daily survival is the task at hand. Imagine more than one, of, one out of every five in our brother and sisterhood of man exists in that condition. While few of those people are Americans, we are not without our own crisis. Even with what is defined as poverty in the United States, which is rich compared to much of the world's population, over 15% of the people live in poverty. That includes more than 20% of American children, among whom 5 million go hungry every day. Also, the average American worker is working longer hours for less money. 20.8% um, earned poverty level wages in 1997, according to census data, up over 5% from 1973. Millions more who hover above the line are likely to go below it if any crisis happens within the family. That would be me, by the way. This is especially true because many low-end jobs have health risks and limited, or, and limited or no health coverage. In fact, because most Americans have no savings, over 50% of the United States population is two, pay two paychecks or less away from potentially being homeless. Yeah, that'd be me too. But while the number of the United States poor is growing, some of us are doing well. In the last 20 years, the after-tax incomes of the wealthiest 1% doubled while 80% of the families saw their incomes remain the same or decline. The highest earning 4% now make more than the bottom 90%. It is possible that if we factor in unreported, untraceable incomes, the incomes of the wealthiest 1,000 Americans might exceed the combined income of all the rest of us. Also, the richest 1% own more than the bottom 51%, or put another way, the richest 1 million families own more than the rest of us combined. Since 1968, the middle class has lost about 10% of its share of income to the wealthy. The bottom line is that the rich are getting richer, the poor poorer, and the middle class is shrinking. Given this trend, maybe our nation will begin to resemble the type of rich-poor gap that we see in much of the rest of the world. According to the World Watch Institute, in 1960, the wealthiest 20% of the world's people accounted for 70% of the global income. The United Nations Development Program reported that by 1993, their share had increased to 85%. Meanwhile, the poorest 1 billion accounted for less than 2% of the global income. While our situation is getting worse, the rich-poor gap in the rest of the world is still more than 10 times that of ours, and the poor try to survive on less than 50 cents a day. How many Americans are really doing well? Just as the Senate tightened up the bankruptcy law in 2001, credit card debt at the end of the year 2000 had jumped to 13% from the previous year to $2.9 trillion. In 1996, Standard & Poor's reported that average, the average U.S. household had credit card debt of $3,400 or more than double the $1,600 from the decade earlier. By 1999, the average credit card debt carried by households not able to pay off their monthly bills rose to over $7,500. Meanwhile, only 38% of the Americans have any savings at all, and those that do, their savings average only $1,000. For people in their late 50s, their median savings as they approach retirement is only $10,000. Much of the blame for our economic woes has been placed on the deficit problem. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, Illegally, I might add, it was never ratified by two-thirds of the states in its final form. 
The national debt has grown to close to $5.7 trillion by the end of 2000. We'll see if the government can repay the debt without continuing to borrow from Social Security. But meanwhile, the interest alone is over $4 billion per week, and there is over 13 times more debt than there is money in the circulation to pay for it. Our government creates money for itself through inflation. It borrows money at X level and pays it back after inflation has taken its toll with cheaper and cheaper dollars. Most victimized by this are the people with the lowest incomes because an ever-increasing percentage of their incomes must go to the basic survival expenses of food and shelter. However, this pattern is now also true of the middle class as more of their income must go to just covering the basics and more and more debt is accumulated. It's a downward cycle that is lowering the quality of life for most of us. Politically, the candidates often pledge more jobs as being the answer. However, with the wealth poverty gap, both in the United States and abroad, this creates a dilemma because of the ability of an increasing number of people to buy anything but necessities diminishes. Moreover, the other dilemma with increasing jobs is even more serious because it affects the sustainability of the planet. In our economic system, the idea that we must keep creating jobs and manufacturing items for consumption, as we have seen, this has led to using up our planetary resources and creating pollution on a scale which is threatening all life on the planet. The World Watch Institute reported that, quote, as a result of our population size, consumption patterns, and technology choices, we have surpassed the planet's carrying capacity, end quote. In fact, at the standard of living now enjoyed by the industrialized nations, the world would only support 2 billion people, about one-third of the planet's current population. The United States is 6% of the world's population. If our levels of capitalism and technology would be expanded to the rest of the planet, there would only be enough for 18% of the people, and the other 82% would have nothing at all. Speaking of the rest of the planet, that brings us to the foreign debt predicament. While the World Bank and the IMF loan money to third world countries in an effort to improve their economies and create more markets for our products, most of it goes to the top wealthy few. As a result, the countries still are unable to repay their debts, their foreign debts, and the burden falls on the poor as inflation rises. As an example, Russia has defaulted on billions as their, on billions as their government has colluded with siphoning money to a few while the masses suffer. Because the borrowing countries can't afford to pay even the interest on their debts, the IMF and the World Bank have to keep loaning money to prevent them from defaulting. This means that an ever greater percentage of the assets in many of our banks are virtually worthless. Even in the United States, banks are allowed to loan money on a fraction of their assets. For example, if a bank has $7 billion in assets, the government would allow them to loan $100 billion to $93 billion more than the bank has. This is a money created out of nothing. What holds the system together is a confidence game. However, if there was ever a mass run on the banks, they would, be, they would fold because the money isn't there. Also, if any of the major debtor countries were to default, this could, could not only cause a crisis with our banks, but would also endanger the international banking system. So if the United States is a compounded national debt, it may not be able to pay, and if many other countries have debts they can't possibly pay, the logical question is, who's got the money? The Japanese was once a popular answer, but let's look at their situation. I'm sorry, at what their situation was even before the late 1990s economic woes. Even in 1990, the average price of a home in Tokyo was over $430,000, and the average size of that home was 674 square feet. At those prices, most workers in Japan could not afford to buy a home. 
In addition, most Tokyo workers have to travel more than two hours to and from work and 20% travel more than four hours each day, and that traveling is done in the standing room only transportation systems with people packed in like sardines. With their economic situation worsening, Japan's youth are bearing the brunt of corporate restructuring and downsizing, and record numbers of Japanese college graduates are now failing to get jobs. But among the people with jobs, the six-day work week is still common, and many public services we take for granted, i.e. sewers, are sometimes still not available. Maybe the Japanese didn't have the money after all. So who's got the money? Well, as most of us are aware, whoever controls the money usually gets to make the decisions in most countries. Previously, we gave statistics that the income of the wealthiest 1 million families in the United States was greater than that of the rest of us combined, but again, that's based solely on what people report. In the complex web of who controls corporations, including multinationals, people have traced the real control of the world's wealth to a few people who can largely pull the strings to make happen what they want to happen, when they want it to happen, and how they want it to happen. For example, Unilever Corporation, having over 3,000 companies in 96 countries with sales larger than the economies of many countries, is one such transitional. A few hundred of these transitionals control entire sectors of the global economy. They have grown beyond the reaches of governments and serve only themselves. They pretty much can do as they please according to their golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. But even if you discount the, that degree of consolidation of power, we are well aware of the economic influence on politics. This happens both at the election level through large financial contributions and at the decision level through lobbying and other economic pressures. This can happen at any level from local to national and even in the media. For example, the John Robbins Institute produced a one-hour television program that presented the destructive health and environmental realities of our excessive meat and dairy consumption. However, because the meat and dairy industries in the many forms do a lot of TV advertising, they were able to use their influence to block this show from being seen on network television. The show was thus regulated, I'm sorry, relegated to public broadcasting, which does not have sponsors. As a result of the limit exposure, most people are still unaware of the serious health and environmental issues involved in our excessive consumption of animal proteins. The messages and information we are exposed to in the media are largely controlled by big money interests. Just a second here. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pause here so we can comment on uh, what we've read so far because these chapters are really long. <laughs> so. Um, that being said, guys, you can go ahead and uh, unmute. Um, Daniel, do you want to comment on what we've read so far first? Um, well, it's it's staggering, the ramifications of uh, the abuse, the consequences of it. Um, I, it just seems like this the only thing that can possibly happen during what we're doing is some sort of collapse. And... I, you know, what it's, it's more than just human beings is at stake. It's the, you know, the entire world. I'm wondering what kind of technology could possibly exist to even begin to undo this, especially if the foundation of all this is money. And another thought that occurred to me, um, since you were talking about that show uh, that was detailing the hazardous effects of all this being relegated to uh, PBS, I'm wondering if that actually enhances its legitimacy of an information source. <laughs> All right, Jack, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, incidentally, those, those huge companies were transnationals, not transitionals. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, but reading, you did a great job reading. 
that would be a daunting task for me. Um, yeah, as, you know, as I said earlier, this these statistics are old. The situation is is far worse now, and and um, the economic situation worldwide is, as we've seen in the last couple of years, is is even far worse than what was described in the book. So, um, um, and Daniel rightly said, so what what can be the solution? So uh, I won't say anything more because, um, you know, this these are facts that, that I think a lot of people know and the listeners know and people who've seen the Zeitgeist movies know a lot about this information. And the question is, of course, what are we going to do about it? So right. um, that's okay. where I'll come in with most of the information. Sure, sure. Uh, go ahead, Joel. Sorry, I had to get off uh, mute. Yeah, um, thanks, Neil. I, I, I just had a question. And now, now um, I'm sorry, I, I only heard from you about a half an hour before the thing, so I didn't get a chance to read the material. Right, good. Uh, but a um, couple of questions come to mind. I just wanted to, I may be jumping the gun here, but I just wondered what would be, what would be uh, Jack's opinion about how we would conduct a, you know, I'm always open to hearing about what people's ideas are for, for a free market or, or um, you know, how would one conduct the initial phases of something like this outside of uh, if there were some kind, if there weren't necessarily a full-scale collapse or even a significant uh, event or something that, that caused a big paradigm shift, what, what would that look like in, in Jack's kind of, uh, what do you envision in that area? Well, yeah, Jack, uh, since you're going, obviously, since he's asking you, feel free to go ahead and elaborate on that. Okay, well, he hasn't gotten to that section yet, but it's, it's pretty clearly laid out in the book. Uh, most people have no idea what it would look like if we had a world that was based on the highest good for all rather than the, the variations of this every person for themselves system. Uh, to use money as an excuse for not being able to do things to, to address not only the ecology of the planet, but the welfare of every living being on the planet is just sheer lunacy because money is created as a contrivance for a means of exchange. And it simply means that our means of exchange has broken down because it's based on people being able to amass a great deal of, of resources and power. So we think what needs to happen is a demonstration of a completely different model, one that is based on the highest good for all. And that's what a group of us did for three years, is meeting to put that vision together. So the idea is that if we could create a community of up to 500 people, that was based on the principle of the highest good for all, is based on collective ownership of that community, that is based on getting rid of all the nonsense jobs and sharing and the sharing of resources, then we could create, a, and, and imagine then six of these 500-person communities so that there's 3,000 people in one place living in harmony with themselves, with nature, growing most of their own food, uh, not playing the monetary system game that's being played, sharing resources, 
people would have to work far less time. They'd have far more abundance. They'd have far more fun. They'd be, they could take back the decision over their everyday lives through a system of consensus decision-making, which we described how it would work on the level of 500 people. So the world needs to see a completely different model, especially as things are breaking down right now, so that if people could see this, they're going to think, geez, I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. These people are happier, healthier, more abundant on all levels. I want to be a part of that. And part of what it takes to do that for this form of the highest good for all is to also move into that consciousness because unless we also address the consciousness piece, we're bringing in old habit patterns to a new game of let's make it work for all of us. So there is a screening process that would be essential for this, but it's not one that is so daunting that people could not move into that consciousness if only out of self-interest. But it's going to take that model to show something completely different because the political and the economic systems as they are are broken, and most people are trying to put Band-Aids on broken systems in order to try and fix them. And as Bucky Fuller said, in order to change something, let's not struggle to change the existing model. Let's create a new one and make the old one obsolete. And that's exactly what is needed at this time. Is I, I was going to initially call the book The Next Revolution, but we dropped the R. The R is silent. It's The Next Evolution. And uh, I think nothing less is called for and nothing less is work. It will work than a complete paradigm shift. That's actually really important that you brought that up because it does, you know, we've talked about this before, is that it's, it's a paradigm shift in values. And I, and I think, Jacques, one of the reasons that he points out that we need to collapse is he, doesn't, he thinks that that's going to be what it takes to really wake people up. I think that kind of both of you are right in that. And I think that, you know, an example, for example, would be great, you know, because it would point to, you know, because once they are looking for something, when we have a working model that they can look at, you know, that certainly has a benefit, you know, strategically of convincing people of these directions. Um, you know, to comment on the, the stuff that we said, that we talked about in the chapter that we've read so far, uh, is that um, it basically, like we talked about, like you know, when you look at it, there's so many inefficient ways that we're using the resources of the planet that we don't need to be doing. You know, like uh, the way that we you know, create you know, our, our meat, uh, the way that we expend resources to make our meat, uh, the fact that we don't really, I mean, the fact that the meat isn't even really good for us in the first place, you know, these are examples of like when we, when we take into account the way that we want to do things, we rarely really take into account like, you know, whether or not, you know, the way we're doing them is the most efficient way possible. And, you know, that's where I see that, you know, the Venus Project, for example, would suggest, you know, like if we're going to produce anything like meat, we need to find a way to do it that's not polluting the world, that's not, you know, basically shortening the lifespan of the planet. You know, and, it's, and as you pointed out, you also pointed out was like, you know, the, the, the media is controlled by these companies through the monetary system to ensure that there's no negative press for anything that these companies are doing. So in the end, you know, it's, it's not known that, you know, by, you know, buying your steak or your roast or whatever, that you're actually doing harm to the planet because of the fact that the way that that's all produced, you know, on this massive scale exceeds the capacity of the planet to be able to take care of it. The, the topsoil issue is one that really scares the hell out of me because, you know, it isn't something that we can replace. 
it, it's, you know, it's not something that we can necessarily synthesize. You know, we need to be focusing on other ways of getting our food. And the average person has no idea. You know, they sit down to their, their porterhouse, and it doesn't even occur to them that what's going, you know, what, what's going on that got them that porterhouse. And that's uh, one of the issues of change in values. And I think that some of us are worried that, it's, you know, that we're not going to be able to reach some of these people until it affects them. That's the way it is, and um, at least for now, anyway. You know, I, I think that we are slowly changing that because the, the green revolution is becoming more um, apparent. Like recently, for example, one of my friends works at Walmart, and he said that you know, Walmart's making all of these totally green stores and you know, things like that. I mean, I, they're still not off of my crap list just because they still use... <laughs> slave labor to, you know, to make all of their cheap products, but, it, but still, it, it's becoming more apparent that, you know, people are starting to pay attention to these things. You know, and whether or not I agree with Al Gore's theories on global warming, it doesn't change the fact that the, primarily the majority of the solutions that he gives are not necessarily bad ideas in the first place. Reducing pollution, you know, as we've talked about on previous shows, like, uh, of all people, Leonardo DiCaprio did a, a documentary on this, pointing out that, okay, so we got global warming, but it also reduces things like acid rain, you know, and other very real problems, you know, to, to make the changes that are suggested. I don't think a carbon tax is the solution. That's just silly to me. Let's just trade our ability to poison ourselves. How about we just not do it anymore? That sounds better to me, you know? The fact that we're even entertaining the notion that we should just be able to continue to do this in some way is so ridiculous to me. And it's, it, if there wasn't for the fact there was so much money involved, it would be so much easier to get to the root. You know, there's so much crap going on in, in all of the freedom movements where people are either uh, global warming deniers or global warming advocates, and we waste so much energy on that. And the reason you can't get a real answer is because there's so much money to be made on both sides of the argument. That's another reason why we advocate that the, the, the paradigm shifts are going to have to change and in some ways money's going to have to go with them in order to be able to get people to, to get it. It's like you pointed out that, that money is essentially a fallacy. Saying that we don't have enough money to fix something is ridiculous. And it occurred to me, it's like, you know, people aren't going to do anything without money. I'm like, well, money doesn't exist in the first place. You want a motivation? How about... We either do this or the world ends. Is that enough of a motivation for you? I think that's a motivation for me. I think that's a little more important than my, my bottom line, my yacht, and my, uh, you know, my Ferrari and the other things. that you know. But they, these people have all convinced themselves that, that, that none of that's important. And as they just continue to sell their, their children and grandchildren's future down the pipe, you know, it's, just, it's amazing to me how good we've become at ignoring the truth that's right there in front of us for the sake of our own comfort and immediate gratification. So, go yeah, ahead. You mentioned, you mentioned Al Gore and, and a lot of the politicians and the international thinkers when they're trying to come up with solutions. Again, they're trying to come up with solutions within the broken economic and political systems. When they talk about, uh, for instance, the economy, they, they say we need more jobs. And, and the truth is we need fewer jobs because, uh, as the research that was pointed out by Bucky Fuller and another uh, prominent um, economist, Schumacher, from England, it's like five out of six jobs or about 85% of the jobs 
only exist because of the lack of cooperation between people. So if we're really talking about energy and we're really talking about the consumption of resources, unless we address that issue, that all those jobs that use up all those resources don't need to exist in a cooperative society, then again, we're just putting Band-Aids on the issue. So that's why we need to create a different model so that people can see how something could work for a group of people that is not based on this crazy every person for themselves paradigm that is now threatening the planet. Now, have you seen, it's also like, because um, I, I did a study recently on Ayn Rand and uh, the, the whole objectivism and libertarianism stuff, and one of the things that really bothered me was the way that they go out of their way to make words like cooperative, collective, sharing, you know, like evil words, like blasphemy, to even speak the word cooperation. Uh, you know, or collectivism is this thing that if you say that out loud at a libertarian convention, and believe me, because I've seen it happen, they all look at you like you need to be burned at the stake. The, the whole notion that we might care about one another and that we might actually be able to do what's best for the world as a whole together and that that might be a good idea is something that they go out of their way to make sure we don't even think about because that's wrong. In most cases, they can't tell you why it's wrong, but they believe it's wrong, and man, you know, don't argue with them, you know, because they, they know what's going on. And if you don't believe them, well, then there's something wrong with you. You know, just, it just seems to me to be so counterproductive, you know, that, you know, I remember being taught about cooperation even in school. And then you get into the world, and the world is just designed that if you cooperate, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. So, um, Daniel, did you have anything further to say? Yeah, I was going to add that word, uh, progressive, in there. That's, that's a buzzword in Indiana, around where I'm working. But um, yeah, I thought I thought that that the overall discussion so far is really good in touching on this. Um, one thing in particular, and, and I really applaud Jack Reed's approach to this because this will get, I think, people's attention when it gets more coverage and people start seeing, and, and I'm interested in seeing, the results of this and the processes that people are using to. Um, uh, make these decisions because that's really going to be key. Um, this information, you said, it was, it's available to us and it's right in front of our face, but we still have to look for this information. We don't get this from Fox News or CNN or any even the local news here. Uh, it's certainly not in the best interest of the system to educate us as to why it's not a good idea. Now, uh, Joel, did you have anything further to add? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Right. Well, really, my my main questions and interest about this would, would kind of be about uh, – maybe Jack could give a brief overview about – I'm just looking at practical side of it. So what would be a brief overview of the screening process for staffing the initial venture? Sure. So, yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Sure. First of all, I'd just like to – before I go into that, just like to go back to the libertarians – and that is that I think the, most of the people just have no conception of what it would look like and how it would work. So I, if you gave me an hour in a room with Ron Paul, for instance, to lay out the vision, I think that, that because so much of it is in alignment with the kinds of uh, thinking that they have in terms of making things work, that uh, – that I don't think they would necessarily be in 
opposition as much as you might think they would because I think that that they they're aware that the current system is not working, but they're not aware of what would work, especially with the environmental crises that we're facing. So I wouldn't necessarily write them off as much as to say, you know, when we can present the vision to them that maybe their attitude might be different on that. Let me, well, yeah, let me go ahead and uh, um, comment on that. But I, I have been noticing that it is possible to get through to them. It's a question of which ones you're talking about, because some of them follow that stuff religiously, and it's not even rational at that point. The ones that you can rationalize with, though, you know, it's like the, the biggest problem that they have is that they've been conditioned to believe that words like cooperation and collectivism immediately equate to fascism. They think that it's going to be forced cooperation, that people are going to go to their houses with guns and make them cooperate. And well, that's because, you know, Ayn Rand came out of that um, out of that whole thing from Russia. I mean, she came right. here. That, her, her whole background, if you, if you check her out, she you can understand where the environment that she emerged from was, was really put that into her. And it's pretty inescapable, it seems, to, to conceive that she wouldn't have that kind of view. And, and really, the whole thing with the, if you check out the objectivist worldview, is that they pretty much see anybody that's a value producer in this world is exploited, but they don't look at, at, at everybody is pretty much exploited across the board, <laughs> some more than others. Right, and well, that's in it, the angle on that though is is that basically um, what I usually have to do because I, I talked recently, for example, the former Libertarian presidential candidate who's a friend of mine. Her name is Christine Smith, and I talked to her about this, and I had to approach it from a very different direction. I said, okay, so let's say that you know, because you you, Libertarians are all about personal responsibility, then personal responsibility could just as easily be why am I dependent on anybody else to produce my stuff? Why can't I produce my own stuff? I'm going to produce my own energy. I'm going to produce my own clothing. I'm going to produce, you know. And, of course, that, that rang true with her. She was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. I can see where that's, you know, definitely freedom. I'm like, well, it's certainly more freedom. It's, it's freedom from my boss. It's, it's freedom from exchange. They're always worried that we're going to take away their freedom to exchange. They want to be able to freely exchange. Like, okay, well, go ahead. But you shouldn't have to do that. If you're truly free, you shouldn't be dependent on anybody. This is just how you get it started. And then eventually you say, now, let's say that a group of people decide to do this, all voluntarily. There's no coercion. Is there anything wrong with that? And they're obviously like, well, no, of course not. I'm like, okay, so what if a whole city of people decide to get together and cooperate, you know, on this level to make a self-sustaining world, you know, where everybody's working together and, you know, and there's no force of coercion. Is that okay? You know, after you scale it up and you take it from a different angle, then they, they usually think on it a little differently. You know, is that, you know, does that kind of a... I mean, does that sound any, in any way what you would like how you would approach it, Jack? Exactly, exactly. And a nice segue into Joel's question about the screening is because uh, through consensus decision making, as the form of the decision making within the community, that means everybody gets to have control over what's happening in their everyday lives, as opposed to the system that we have now, where Basically, we're being told what to do by any level of government that's not us, and, and everybody becomes the uh, uh, kind of the disenfranchised minority because systems, you know, the decisions keep going against them often enough to where they feel like, well, I'm, not, I'm really not represented, but in this community, one would be represented. And we just completed out here in Santa Barbara with our 
core group a training in consensus decision making because that will be part of the screening process and that's actually exactly what we did. It was a 40-hour training and teaching people the consciousness that it takes to move into that highest good for all when making decisions. And there's a lot that goes into it. There are other uh, trainings that are done on consensus decision making. Um, some of them are two-day workshops. You really can't get into the, the shift in consciousness that it takes in, in that short of time for, for everybody. I mean, these were very high consciousness, enlightened people, and it was still a struggle for them. And as a final exercise, we did do that screening process for the group. There was two people who had dropped out of the group. They probably would not have been people who would have been able to have, have passed the scrutiny of, of the group. But what we envision is that people go through that consensus training process and are screened uh, for the ability to use consensus and for the ability to hold that consciousness of the highest good for all. Because uh, a lot of communities that has, have said, hey, let's do consensus, and they don't do the screening, that means one person who has some consciousness issues can just throw the whole thing into a muck. And Dinah Leaf Christian, we had her here for a workshop uh, in November. She's probably the leading expert on American intentional communities. And she was saying, you know, that's one of the big problems is in trying to do consensus. She's seen it break down so many places. I asked her, did any of these places have a screening process for for making sure that people had the consciousness to do it, and none of them did where they were having the problems. And, it's, and it, we talk about the, the consensus thing and about how it's probably better that if you, if you can form a society that is working in consensus, that absorbing people into it who perhaps may not have made the screening, who may not have made the original cut would be easier than trying to start one with people who don't get it. So basically, like, if you already have a society where it's already functioning, consensus is working, somebody walks into that sociological pattern, they're going to be more apt to be able to adjust. It's just like adjusting to a new culture. And, I mean, like, do you, you feel if that's correct, that people could, could come into an already functioning consensus society and be able to adjust easier? Especially since they'll be able to see the benefits of it when, uh, when things are breaking down now as they are, they come into a place where they see people are far more abundant on all levels, happier, happier healthier. Out, they're going to want to make this shift just out of self-interest. Mm -hmm. That's it, very true, very true. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, oh, that was actually a question that one of my listeners had. Uh, he was just curious. Uh, this was um, about your, your story about how there was, you know, you had that time you were trying to make consensus and there was this issue you thought you had and then, like, uh, one of the ladies in your group said that's not it. And then um, he was just morbidly curious, basically, I wouldn't say morbidly, just, you know, really curious <laughs> what, what it was you guys were talking about at the time. Do, do you remember? You know, uh, that happened twice um, where she blocked the decision, and I, 
I have no idea at this point what those two decisions were. I remember the process of how we were so frustrated that she wasn't agreeing with us and and then how we got into just eventually just throwing out crazy ideas and how that shifted us to a whole other place as we built on this. But um, the exact thing, uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't have morbid curiosity, but I, I racked my brain trying to remember what it was, and I can't remember either. Okay, well, it was just a curiosity then. Um, did anybody else have anything further before I read more from the book? Okay. Um, we're now uh, approaching into the, you know, what's going to be into the second hour of uh, this particular show. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to V Radio. Please visit v-radio.org. Um, I'm still looking for donations for the conclusion of this month, or actually last month. <laughs> um, then I'll put up the new ones. Uh, thanks again to everybody who's put up the who's supported us so far. And um, if you have any questions about what it is we're talking about, don't hesitate to uh, bring them up in the chat room. Um, I've also been checking the switchboard. There is a toll-free number um, available. At least there should be, although it's not showing up. There was. I've got the minutes here. For some reason, I can't find the number itself. But basically, I think it's displayed when you actually uh, are looking at the show page. So. If anybody would like to call in, let me know. If you'd like to be added via Skype, um, my Skype is VTB115. Uh, and you can add me to your Skype and then PM me on Skype, and then I will add you to the call. So anyway, that being said, um, we're going to move on to the rest of the, or basically, what's the rest of this chapter in the book. And um, I'm actually going to take a moment to go ahead and read some of this stuff that it was on some of these other pages here. Let's see if I can find any of it that was... Okay, so uh, Michael Renner, State of the World, 1997. Those at the bottom of the economic heap have to contend with meager or unpredictable income despite long hours of backbreaking work, insufficient amounts of food and poor diets, lack of access to safe drinking water, susceptibility to preventable diseases, housing that provides very few comforts and scant shelter, and the absence of social services that... That, um, that the better off take for granted. Rich-poor disparities are, be are about much more than just the access to modern conveniences or the inability to accumulate material wealth. They are often a matter of life and death. Um, go back here just a second. A vegetarian baseball team. A Japanese baseball team climbed from the cellar to first place by switching to a macrobiotic diet. Beginning in October 1981, when he took over as manager of the Cebu Lions, Tetsuro Hiruka prescribed a dietary change for his players who had finished in last place the previous season. Hiruka limited their meat intake and banned, pol and banned polished rice and sugar altogether. Instead, he said, his players would eat unpolished rice, tofu, fish, and soybean milk. The following spring, he ordered them into a vegetable and soy diet. Haruka told his men that meats and other animal foods increase an athlete's susceptibility to injuries. Natural foods, on the other hand, protect the body from sprains and dislocations and keep the mind clear. The Lions took a lot of ribbing during the 1982 season. The manager of the Nippon Ham Fighters, a team sponsored by a major meat company, called the Lions the goat team and sneered, they are only eating weeds. 
But the Lions edged out the ham fighters for the Pacific League Championship in what sports writers called the Vegetables versus Meat War, then went on to beat the Chunichi Dragons in the Japan Series. Cebu again won the Pacific League Championship and the Japan Series in 1983. Food for thought, isn't it? It was significant from Parade Magazine, April 1984 by Irving Wallace. Uh, being an athlete myself, I'm actually interested in learning about how these uh, natural food diets prevent injuries because I got terrible ankles. Um, Denmark's macrobiotic experiment. During the First World War, Denmark was blockaded and widespread food shortages and malnutrition were a very real threat. Mikkel Hinade, superintendent of the Danish State Institute Food Research, was appointed advisor to the Danish government. Hinade or Hinheed, I'm probably mispronouncing this, not only solved the problem, he achieved a complete reversal of the situation. In the years before the war, Denmark imported inexpensive grain. Danish farmers bred pigs, cattle, and poultry and sent eggs and butter to England. The Danes themselves were big eaters of meat and eggs. After the blockade, however, their grain supply was cut off, and there were over 5 million grain-eating domestic animals and 3,500,000 to feed. Immediately, Hinheed ordered that four-fifths of the pigs and one-fifth of the cattle be killed so that more grain would be available for human consumption. In addition, consumption of pork and other meats was reduced or eliminated altogether. Hinheed also limited the production of alcoholic beverages, knowing that the grain used to make them would be better used to make a special whole meal bread called klebrot. The Danes began to eat more porridge, more fresh greens, vegetables, peas, beans, and fruits, and less amounts of milk and butter. From October 1917 to October 1918, the most trying period of the war, Denmark became the healthiest nation in Europe. In one year, on a diet similar to the macrobiotic diet, the cancer rate dropped by 60% and the death rate fell more than 40%. After the war, the Danes adopted their former diet and the mortality rate quickly returned to pre-war levels. From Mikkel Hineed, The Effects of Food Restriction During War on Mortality in Copenhagen, Journal of the American Medical Association, 1920, 381-382. I guess I'm going to need the pages. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, skip forward now. We're now in the political section of the book. Supposedly our First Amendment guarantees free, free speech. But we, as the previous example shows, have limited free speech in this country. The intention of the Bill of Rights was to prevent domination of public thought and discourse by the few. But because big money interests control the media, they can usually buy, usually buy getting out their message to the vast majority of the people versus anyone else who has something to say to the contrary. Thus, these big corporations can continue their assault on the environment. Because they invoke their First Amendment privilege to protect their saying whatever they want, true or not, they can get out of their message and drown out the opposition. The power of media spent money in shaping our lives is remarkable. The average American adult sees 21,000 commercials per year, and 75% of them are from the largest 100 corporations. And before we go any further, I actually want to, want to bring something up I saw on a uh, it's either outfoxed or the world according to Monsanto, but basically it was about Monsanto and a, a Fox News group that had found out that they were putting some harmful hormones in the milk that were linked to cancer. Um, and basically, after a court hearing in, the, in regards to the issue, one of the things that they was revealed was that the judge revealed that reporting inaccurate news is not against the law. <laughs> so it's 
just wanted to put that out. As they said, yes, in fact, they can say whatever they want, true or not. And if they don't like what your you know, TV station is saying, they'll just buy it. But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and go back to what I was reading. The power of media spent money in shaping our lives is remarkable. The average American adult sees 21,000 commercials per year, and 75% of them are from the largest 100 corporations. In fact, corporations spend more money on advertising than is spent on all secondary education in the United States. So let's do the math. The largest 1,000 companies in America account for over 60% of the GNP, leaving the balance to 11 million small businesses and 40% of the nation's wealth. Also, 1% of Americans own fully 60% of corporate equities. For most people, the information and choices they are aware of are based, basically being controlled by a relatively few people. More directly in the political arena, these few people exert even more influence over our lives. As Paul Hawken wrote, corporations have created a multi-billion dollar industry of lobbyists, public relations firms, scholarly papers prepared by conservative think tanks, artificially generated people's campaigns, expert witnesses at public hearings who work for or are paid by corporate interests and lawyers based in Washington, D.C., whose sole purpose is to influence lawmakers and regulators in their offices in four-star restaurants, at lavish receptions, on overseas junkets. Where do congressmen go to bone up on the issues? To Palm Springs to play golf, to Bermuda to snorkel, to snowbird to, uh, to, snowbird to ski, to Las Vegas to gamble. During the 1989-90 legislative session, members of the House of Representatives took 4,000 privately funded trips, almost 10 per member, about three-quarters of their junkets were paid for by corporations. The point is that the average person has very little to say in our democracy. Our freedom of speech, as was envisioned by our founding fathers, is not being protected. This was supposed to be a government by the people and for the people, and it no longer is that, and possibly never will be again as long as we cling to the everyone-for-themselves model. We, the people of the United States of America, supposedly live in a democracy. We therefore look at the political system to make changes for us. But while our democracy may be better than most, there are some, so many things wrong with politics, both here and abroad, that it is easy to blame politicians for our current environmental health, economic, and social predicaments. Environmental health, economic, and social predicaments. However, for the purposes of looking at solutions to the world's imbalances, I'm only going to look at a couple of issues related to politics. The first issue is that we as a nation have become a collection of minority groups by ideals, values, regions, age, economics as well as race. In this political system, hardly anyone feels that his or her needs are being met. As a result, in the election process, we generally vote against someone or some issue and for what we see as the lesser of evils. Politicians know this and therefore run ads during elections where the opposition is routinely vilified. They do it because it's effective. We don't trust anyone. We know no one is really going to represent us and thus we're looking for the best reason to vote against someone or something. An article, an article in the Los Angeles Times carried the subhead, Polls and interviewers, or interviews show voters are angry at politicians, bewildered by the issues, and disgusted with the choices. At stake may be democracy itself. Just before Colin Powell announced in 1995 that he was not a candidate for President of the United States, the Times also ran an article titled, GOP Candidates Start, Start Anti-Powell Research, and subheaded, Politics, Information is Being Gathered on General on the and General's public record, private life, Dole, Buchanan, Camps are said to be leading the most aggressive drives. 
This is a time of againstness as we as a people and as individuals see the American dream slipping away. One of the basic tenets of democracy was that the people would be responsible voters, but that is now almost impossible. To find out who the candidates really are, which special interest groups they are economically responsible to, and how much integrity they have, and what the propositions you're voting on really mean would require a staff of investigators and analysts working full-time for you. When the Constitution was written, few had the right to vote, and they probably knew something about men and the more simple issues of the time that they were voting on. As the population increased, government expanded, the territory of the United States grew, the Industrial Revolution produced drastic lifestyle changes, and people accumulated vast fortunes and economic political influence. This all resulted in our knowing less and less about the people and issues we were voting on. As more and more decisions were reached over time, which alienated first one group of people in certain life circumstances and then another group, eventually almost everyone in this collection of minority groups has been left feeling underrepresented and with their needs unmet. I think that most of us consider ourselves minorities, lacking in power and with little respect for our decision makers, who have so much control over our lives by virtue of laws, taxes, services, etc., I've already touched on the second issue I'd like to explore, the economic connection to politics. Why can't we, on national, state, and local levels, clean up the environment and make decisions that are in our overall best interests? The answer usually is that economic interests exert a powerful influence on all levels. As Bill Bradley said, I believe money is eating away at the core of democracy like acid eating away at a cloth, and it's time to do something about it. The few of the more horrifying examples of this economic influence concern how big money interests have dictated the way we produce energy. First, Nikola Tesla, whose genius in electronic inventions dwarfed those of Thomas Edison at the turn of the century, invented and demonstrated a way to send electricity in waves through the ground without wires. That electricity could then power a light, a motor, and even a city in virtually limitless supply. From his proposed power station at Niagara Falls, he could have cleanly powered the entire planet, but despite his credibility earned from his hundreds of inventions that built the Edison and Weston House corporations and are the foundation for our electronic age, he could get no financing. He was told that his free and virtually limitless source of energy could, uh, would undermine the economic interests of these corporations and the very rich, powerful individuals who owned and controlled them. Tesla therefore set out to build a power station with his own money to give free and clean energy to all the people of the planet. When his station was almost completed and his own money almost spent, it was burned down and destroyed. What a different life we would be living on this planet if the economic interests had not stopped Tesla. There would have been no threat to the earth from the burning of fossil fuels. Interestingly, Nikola Tesla, perhaps the greatest inventor of all time, remains virtually unknown to most Americans overshadowed by the contemporary Edison, although it was Tesla who really ushered in the electronic age. Another clean source of fuel can be obtained from the hemp plant. The fuel burns cleanly, and the plant also helps regenerate the soil. Farmers in this country used to grow a lot of hemp, which they could convert to fuel for their farm equipment, which also produced, uh, producing a multitude of products, even clothing. However, hemp is also a cheap source of paper, and this caused its demise. As Hugh Downs reported in his commentary for ABC News, William Randolph Hearst, the new newspaper mogul, owned timber interests and paper mills and consequently had a huge economic interest in using trees, not hemp, for paper. Therefore, through his newspapers and other economic controls, he ran a campaign to illegalize hemp. 
He called it by the Spanish name marijuana and focused solely on the narcotic property of the plant's flowers. As a result, he succeeded in legally banning hemp from being grown. However, during World War II, when the U.S. needed fuel, it again paid farmers to grow hemp. In 1942, U.S. Department of Agriculture film, Hemp for Victory, promoted the value of hemp and urged that farmers plant hundreds of thousands of acres. However, after the war, Hearst triumphed. Otherwise, we could be using clean-burning fuel and safely produce paper without the deadly dioxins from the bleaching of wood pulp, which have ravaged our groundwater and waterways for the life forms dependent on them. Downs pointed out that hemp can be used to produce over 25,000 environmentally friendly products, and that Popular Mechanics ran a 1938 article about hemp called The New Billion Dollar Crop. Of course, the key to whether something gets produced is billions to whom. If powerful forces stand to lose, they would rather sacrifice our health and the environment. That doesn't necessarily make them evil. It's just that our everyone-for-themselves paradigm has long fostered these kinds of results. Hemp Through History The first Gutenberg Bible was printed on hemp paper. Christopher Columbus's sails and ropes were made from hemp. The first drafts of the Declaration of Independence were printed on hemp paper. Benjamin Franklin owned a mill that made hemp paper. The first American flag was made out of hemp. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson grew it. In 1990, or 1794, Washington said, Make the most out of the hemp seed. Sow it everywhere. Henry Ford, who wanted to build and fuel cars using farm products, tested a car body made of hemp and other bio-based materials, and it ran off of ethanol. The first Levi's jeans were made from hemp. Even without hemp, the technology existed to make non-polluting cars years ago. However, there have been a multitude of inventions that were either brought, uh, bought by the auto and energy industries, then put on the shelf, or else the inventors have been harassed or forced out of the business. Still, as in the time of Tesla, the big money interests that control the energy businesses also control our transportation and thus the quality of our environment. The government could clean up the environment by mandating that all pollutants be eliminated within three to five years. That would create the time to produce the changes, but it won't happen because certain huge economic interests would have too much to lose, which would be good for almost everyone, but bad for them. But we will probably see some good things happen, i.e. solar recharging stations for electric cars, as soon as the oil industry figures out a way that they can make money on a changeover to solar electric. One of my personal pet peeves is the fluoridation of our water supplies. Fluoride is a poison that must be removed from fertilizer for plants and is known to be linked to all sorts of damage to our bodies, from bone disease to genetic damage to cancer. It is even more toxic than lead. It kills mice, rats, and humans the same way it kills bacteria in the mouth. It poisons them. However, we have been sold on the idea that it reduces tooth decay to the point that it's hard to find toothpaste without it. Yet all the responsible studies have shown that fluoride has no effect on slowing tooth decay, and even the union that represents all the scientists and professionals of the Environmental Protection Agency were so convinced about the dangers of fluoride that they unanimously voted in July 1997 to take a stand against water fluoridation. Check out the required warning on your fluoride toothpaste. Warning, keep out of reach of children under six years of age. If you accidentally swallow more than used for brushing, seek professional help or contact a poison control center immediately. So why, when Japan and nearly all of Europe have rejected fluoridation, is fluoride still used in the U.S.? Again, follow the money. Industries stuck with disposing of their fluoride, it's classified as a toxic waste, only slightly less toxic than arsenic, originally promoted it as a means, by, uh, as a means of reducing tooth decay. Commercial interests, such as the 
phosphate fertilizer industry and aluminum manufacturers get to sell their hazardous waste product to municipal municipalities for a profit rather than having to pay $7,000 per 5,000-gallon tanker expense of disposal for the fluoride toxic waste. Now, even though toothpaste manufacturing companies know the truth about fluoride, they are afraid to tell us that they have been mistaken all these years, again because of the toxic disposal costs as well as the exposure to lawsuits. So more and more cities fluoridate their water, and more and more people continue to die and suffer as a result of these financial wheels that have been set into motion. However, through grassroots citizens' movements and class action lawsuits, I believe that the truth will eventually come out on the fluoridation, and when it does, both the government and some major corporations will be liable for billions in damages. For more information about fluoridation, refer to the www.fluoridealert.org, www.fluoride-journal.com, or www.saveteeth.org. But I digress. As this book is not about againstness, it's about showing a way that we can all live together for the highest good of all. Politically, one needs money to have power in this country. One also needs money to be heard. As a consequence, the poor and, and poorer and uneducated people, for the most part, lack the power, the voice, and the money to change the social, economic, educational systems to truly meet our needs. Therefore, we have generation after generation of people in a lowly socioeconomic position. This has an impact on everyone, not just on this group, as we have to finance welfare and the cost of crime driven by the desperation of poverty. Many of the generational poor who resort to crime feel that they don't have anything to lose because if people don't have any hope of improving or getting by, then laws and prisons are no deterrent. So the political system is inadequate to meet the needs of the poor, those with no money or influence. As a result, society as a whole not only has to suffer the direct consequences of crime, but also has to spend money for the legal system, for jails and prisons and supervision, money that could be spent on education, housing, and opportunities to improve those people's lives and give them hope. Social. Some crimes, as I've said, grow out of economic desperation. When I was a state rehabilitation counselor, I had the unique opportunity to look at drugs through the eyes of some of the users and street pushers. Society has the attitude that we must put these bad guys in the... I got to know them and their backgrounds. They were people who felt trapped by their depressed living situations and economic opportunities. Selling drugs offered a way out, a chance for the good life. As I worked to help them get back on their feet after either incarceration or drug treatment programs, I found them easy to love and empathize with. They, in turn, really responded to love and understanding given without judgment. I also worked with many others who didn't sell but used drugs and alcohol as an escape from their lives. Again, I empathized with their pain and the sense of isolation and alienation that drove them to try to escape, and again, love and understanding helped. Incidentally, it's no mystery why the third world um, farmers would grow plants for drugs. Multinational corporations have gone into countries and bought up resources at the lowest possible price, then manufactured goods and sold them back at the highest possible prices. With few or no economic options, the farmers have been forced to grow the most lucrative cash crops to sell to drug dealers to try to survive. Interestingly, the multinational's rape of the third world then cycles back into the industrialized nation in the form of illegal drugs. The same is true of pesticides, which were banned here because they were dangerous. They get sold to third world countries and cycle back to us in the food from, that we buy from them. Another third world issue we hear a lot about is overpopulation. 
The population is now about 6.2 billion at the turn of the century and projected to approach 11 billion by 2050. If people indeed survive, most of that growth will be in the already impoverished third world and with the capacity of the world to grow food already waning <coughs> sorry, due to topsoil loss and generations of agricultural abuses to the land, the least productive areas will be these same countries. So throughout the world, we will undoubtedly see ever-increasing starvation tragedies like those we have already seen in the poor countries. We have an article here, Grandmother 71 Arrested, Did Despair Lead to Crime? Stress, as money woes and illness dogged longtime foster mother, she allegedly attempted an armed robbery by Abigail Goldman, Time Staff Writer. The district attorney's office is considering charging 71-year-old Mary Ruth Blanco with attempted armed robbery. Her family in West Covina is considering the way mounting, uh, mounting financial trouble can drive good people to do bad things. After a lifetime of taking care of others, 53 years as a wife, 41 years as a mother, and 35 years as a foster parent to scores of needy children, police said Blanco was on the verge of losing everything because of something she never cared much about money. Last week, she and her 75-year-old husband, Raymond, received notice that the IRS was going to garnish half of his pension check, $750 for eight months. A few days later, their mortgage company threatened to foreclose over $900 in unpaid property taxes. Increasingly ill with diabetes, the grandmother who helped care for her daughter, son-in-law, and two-and-a-half-week-old granddaughter was becoming desperate. Saturday night, authorities say she snapped. Blanco took a relative's, a relative's vintage 32 caliber Colt automatic handgun, drove a red um, pickup to a nearby Unical self-serve station on Pacific Avenue, and demanded that a clerk empty, a clerk empty the register, police said. Safe behind bulletproof glass. <laughs> wow, uh, that's like the end of the article here, but you know, just like Peter said, <laughs> you know, this is where crime comes from. But, um, but let's get back to the issue of the isolation and alienation, which I believe is the crux of many of our societal problems. We've already looked at the desperation of poverty, poverty, lack of opportunity, and the crowding of people in inner cities, all of which keep getting worse in our current economic issue, times. But let's look at another inhumane practice that goes on all the time. The largest, least represented, and most disenfranchised minority group in this country is people who are elderly. I dislike using that label, the elderly, because it's stereotyping and dehumanizing. People are people first and should not be lumped into groups like the handicapped, the blacks, or the foreigners. But we often do with older people in this country, especially those with a few financial resources, which is the situation for most people over 65, is to lump them together in old age homes to die. We see many of them as mentally incapacitated and often they are treated as children. But how did those behaviors come about? I think that isolation and alienation may in fact be the biggest problem of all the problems we've looked at. We are a society of every person or, if we're lucky, family for themselves. With that system, many people feel like they don't have the power and connections to really participate in life. We must also realize that, unlike most of you who are reading this, many people really have no idea how to get in touch with and share feelings. They don't know how to get and give nurturing in their lives how to express their needs and to get them met, and how to love and be loved. They therefore have no idea how to form real friendships or to make any real connection with others and even with themselves. Thus, as people, as people grow older, many are really on their own, alone inside and alone outside. 
We may eventually label them as being mentally ill or senile, but what if they had had the opportunity to really form friendships in a support system spanning all age groups? Maybe then those same people would be leading vibrant, healthy lives. It's interesting that our educational system doesn't teach us the essence of communicating and how to really share ourselves and get our needs met when this has more to do with success in life on all levels than anything else we could be taught. Did you know that according to Surgeon General David Satcher's 1999 report on mental health, during any given year, one in five Americans suffer from some form of mental illness? Indeed, the isolation alienation factor has been increasing for all ages and situations. According to a 1990 survey, the Youth Risk Surveillance Report, published by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for grades 9 through 12, in 1950, the suicide rate was 2.2 per 100,000. In 1990, the rate was 11.3, but more than that, 27.3% of the 9th, 9th through 12th graders had thought seriously of suicide, 16.3% had devised a specific suicide plan, and 8.3% had tried to kill themselves. The Center's 1995 reconfirmed these numbers. What is happening that is causing over a quarter of our population about to enter adulthood to think seriously about killing themselves? We've already touched on the economic deprivation and the growing number of poor, but this problem pervades the entire economic range. I suggest that, again, the cause is the isolation and alienation that people feel. We've had a breakdown of the family system where single parents are both, or, or parents both working is the norm. We have families relocating away from their extended families and friends due to job locations, and the economics of finding affordable housing. In short, many people have lost their support systems, and they feel alone and powerless to make the meaningful, nurturing connections that all of us need to have in our lives on a daily basis. For some people, their support system and meaning in their lives is derived from their employment, but most workers also look forward to retirement and to get that retirement income. In most companies, one can retire at 55 or 60 or 63, but the real financial rewards are to retire at the age 65. From California's Department of Rehabilitation Stress Management Training, I learned that according to insurance statistics, most people who work until age 65 live an average of one or more of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, work until the age of 65 live an average of one more year. One year. That's one reason why the financial rewards are much greater for retirement at 65. It costs the financial institutions much less. As people leave work, meager as, they, as that support system may have been, they move into the separation of lives devoid of, of a support system, and they don't know how to get in touch with their own needs, let alone how to get those needs met. So the lives of most people at all ages are being fragmented. This happens through the economics of work and living locations. The isolation of our lives, both in terms of our diminishing support systems and the corresponding increasing difficulty in getting our needs met, and our growing alienation from others, including the bureaucracies and decision makers that control much of our lives, and especially from ourselves. Most of us feel like we don't have the time or energy to examine what we really want to do and how we really want to live. We live our lives with traffic and, com and commutes where everything is spread out. We live here, work there, shop somewhere else, and if we have time left over, exercise and do our recreation somewhere else, and so on, ad nauseum. In addition, our lives are permeated with responsibilities and worrying about the pressures of paying bills and taxes, trying to make ends meet, 
how to invest, what to buy, who to call, and everything else that must be done to keep afloat in life. At the same time, hanging over our heads is the constant reality of what would happen to us if we didn't handle these pressuring matters. I think that's what's so great about the vacations where we really get away. We are so trapped in our frenetic schedules, in our world of clocks, computers, correspondence, and we look to vacations, if we can afford them, to get away from, the all, from all the responsibilities and live in the now for a brief time. According to a 1990 Harris poll, Americans had one-third the leisure time that they had in 1973. According to the Labor Department nationwide, we are now working at the highest number of hours since 1947. Our overtime hours are the highest since the weapons-producing years of World War II, and more people than ever are holding down multiple jobs. Yet most people continue to experience a gradually eroding standard of living. We need to be able to relax and to have real, meaningful, and nurturing connections with others, and especially to get centered within ourselves. But because we usually spend so much time with work and economic concerns, and we often live in such a diverse, in diverse places, even within the same city from our support systems, most of us get together with good friends infrequently. Others have so little time and energy or skill to even culture such friendships that they have very few real connections with people. Also, we typically have little time for exercise and little opportunity for fun recreation with others. It's so much easier to just be entertained by television. One of the end results of the fragmentation of society and of the feelings of separation and powerlessness is what I call the element of they-ness. As we increasingly lead our lives in an ever, every person for him, her or himself fashion, we see others as them, not as one of us, but not as one of our family. We become very impersonal in our dealings with others. However, our choices and actions will affect someone or some people we don't even know. Yet as a rule, most of us don't see or care about that impact and don't understand that the effect of our actions eventually comes back on us. As long as it's not me or someone else to be, uh, too, close to me being affected, who cares? For example, when we're out and about or even at home or work, it seems innocuous for us to just toss out or trash our, and litter because they will pick it up. It's too much of an inconvenience to carry it around and even more inconvenient to recycle it. So we just send things away for them to pick up and take to landfills without a thought about the effect that our choice is having on the environment, on economics, and on the people we pay to be them. Another of the them groups that plays a part in our daily lives is the farm workers. We see them bent over in the fields, working for very little and living in usually squalid conditions. The field pickers usually have no health insurance and end up with painful chronic back problems as well as lung, skin, and other diseases from handling and, breaking, uh, and breeding toxic pesticides and fertilizers. But as long as we have relatively low-cost food, uh, low food on the table, most of us never think about them. If we did, we might drive up the price of food, so it's better to just isolate ourselves from any thoughts of them. But vainness involves more than throwing things away for, for them to handle, and, to handle, and minorities such as farm work, minorities such as farm workers and people who are homeless or elderly. In our isolated and alienated lives, almost everything we do, like using products that either inhibit the sustainability of the planet and or pollute the planet, has an element of they-ness in it. However, the cumulative effect of all our they and away actions is that it all comes back on us in the form of taxes, health risks, and the regimentation and authority of society that cramps and preoccupies our lives. 
Okay, well, that's the end of uh, Chapter 2. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on my panelists again. Um, I'm going to start again with you, Daniel. Did you have any comments about this chapter? Um, well, it's, other than the fact that it's extremely insightful, and I'm going to be buying this book as soon as I uh, get through this, um, it's, the presentation of the uh, problem is very... Uh, very brilliant, and it's very, uh, very clear, and it's also very scary and sad. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, Joel? Yeah, it sounds like we're in agreement, you know, with a lot of these things. It's not just the other people out there that are doing this level of planning. I, I still have questions about, you know, what, what the screening process would entail, but uh, that's really, you know, more kind of nitpicky stuff, I suppose, as far as, you know, how the venture would kind of come together. I probably have to read the, the, the book in, in full to get that. Okay, Jack, uh, what about you on this particular chapter? Thank God we're through reading that chapter. What a downer. <laughs> if I was just listening to that information, I might throw up my hands and say, Geez, if that's what this book is about, I don't want to read it. I'm just overwhelmed with how bad the situation is, which is, of course, far worse than what I described it back uh, 10 years ago. But uh, just that was just 54 pages of the book that deal with the current situation, just in case people were not aware of what that situation was and the interconnectedness of all these problems and why we need a systems theory solution which addresses that interconnectedness of all the problems. So I just want for anybody who's out there listening, the book is, that was just 54 pages on a 300 plus page book. Most of the book is about the solutions and what Joel just mentioned about the screening process that's dealt with in Chapter 4 under how do we expand our community as part of the uh, 12 uh, question descriptions of the community. But, uh, geez, and just listening to that, because I hadn't read that again, and, and I can listen to it as if it's somebody else having written it, because I, at this point, I don't have a direct memory of having written those things. Uh, and just listening to it, it just sounds overwhelming, like, what do we do about all this? But there is a solution on what we can do that can change the whole game on the planet. Well, you know, um, I think, though, that there was definitely some solution-oriented stuff in the beginning, you know, like near the end there, where he's talking about, you know, what he, meaning you, you're talking about connection, and how people are not connected enough anymore, and I think that people just realizing that that's true would, you know, would be part of the solution, is figuring out that, you know, gee, you know, I, I really I really need to be more connected to the people around me. I need to think about that. I mean, like, when I was reading that, the first thing that popped into my head was that terrible situation recently of that, that poor homeless guy who decided to help that girl who was being mugged, and then nobody helped him. You know, that's an example of that, that disconnectedness and, and, and what, uh, what problems it creates. Yes, I have a friend who's had four near-death experiences, and when he went to the other side and was being shown uh, a lot of things uh, about what was happening on the planet and, and how the planet works. And 
they said the guides that were working with him there told him that if, if one understood this basic thing, that they wouldn't really need to understand anything else, and that is that everything is one thing. So if the idea here is that we are all one, then there is no separation, that separation is the illusion, and maybe that's what we're here on this planet to learn, is that that separation is an illusion, so how can we make this work for all of us? Well, even on a scientific level, when George Carlin talked about that, he pointed out that we supposedly all come from the, you know, the, the same cosmic matter of a star, and that we really are all one. You know, even if you if you take the metaphysical out of it, you're still looking at, you know, the, the the very real reality that we all live on this planet, and the things that we do affect everybody else who lives here. And if you don't um, recognize that, it's just a matter of time. I mean, especially if you're going to be in a system where everybody's for themselves, and more to the point, everybody's competing with each other while doing that, you know, with no concern whatsoever about the long-term effects. You know, people don't recognize that, like we talked about this in that one show where Nash's theory was that the best way for everybody to get what they needed was for people to do what was best for themselves and the group. You know, we need to get away from this idea that we need to be against the notion of doing things that are the benefit of all mankind. We need to remember that we're part of mankind. You know, we're part of the world even. You know, not just masters of the earth, we're, we're part of it. And, and the fact that we have disconnected ourselves from that and have become more interested in like, you know, the concept of survival now is totally related to the bottom line. How much money am I making? That's the measure of what a great man I am. Do I have a Ferrari? You know, do I have a, you know, a, a nice house? You know, that also ends up determining things like, do I therefore end up having an attractive wife? You know, there's all these, like, different values that we have that we're being told that this is survival. This means that you're doing really well. This means that you're secure. The funny thing is, is that most of those people that I know who are wealthy are miserable, in, in their personal lives. They're miserable. They're not happy at all. And in most cases, they're very lonely people. And I think that's because they were told that they, you know, they'd get that happiness and bliss by you know, being really selfish and getting everything that they could out of society. And then they get to the end of it, and then they still feel hollow. You know, I mean, do you see what I'm saying with that, Jack? Absolutely, because that connection needs to be made within themselves. Otherwise, the universe is going to always show us that it's not out there, that we have to realize that we are, that we can have that deeper connection with ourselves in terms of the loving, and with that connection, that then we can make a real connection with other people, with nature. But if that's lacking, no matter what, the next step is of what we achieve or what we're able to get in the outer world, it simply is not going to be enough. Yeah, I definitely agree. Did you have any further comments, Daniel? Um, well, I'm hoping at some point that um, uh, maybe we could have a, another show that goes a little bit more into the book because I, I do kind of understand exactly where Jack's coming from with the, uh, the overwhelming um, underscoring of the problems that are existing, but it's actually very informative and it's quite motivating to me personally to uh, actually learn more of what could be done to um, alleviate this or fix it. Well, as long as it's okay with Jack, it's actually my intention to go through the whole book at one point or another. I'm just trying to do it in um, 
pieces because I still want people to buy Jack's book. <laughs> so, um, so how, is that okay with you, Jack, if we continue to do these shows? Absolutely. And if people want to get the book, um, it, the best way to do it is to, to go to the website and get it through the website um, because, um, you know, that way more resources come into Community Planet. One can get it on Amazon. Uh, and when I first signed up with Amazon, I just noticed that, that they were advertising that they had used copies of the book before they had any copies of the book. So, And then I found out from uh, – uh, from a, a publishing organization that that's a typical trick that is used. Uh, so, you know, I, the book's still on Amazon just so people can get it, but uh, the, the preference is to get it through Community Planet, and that way I could even autograph it before I send it out. Actually, I remember Roxanne has had similar problems, like the Venus Project has had problems with uh, their book on Amazon, too. And you end up with like, these versions of it that are like so overpriced, and you know it's it's really about you know like making sure that these organizations that are trying to build you know, the world better get these resources rather than these greedy companies. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I think especially since um, I know that it increased the sales of the of the uh, the best of money can't buy when I read that on my show. You know I think if we continue to have these you know these good discussions about this book, it'll definitely motivate people to get involved. Yeah, and uh, that was communityplanet.org, correct? Yes, communityplanet.org is the website. Mm -hmm. And there's also a great video there of me on a good day and edited, so it's really, uh, it really <laughs> presents itself well. Uh, <laughs> a great 38-minute a great video that, that shares a lot about what the vision is. Yeah, I really like that video. It's actually what ended up prompting me to... Uh, contact you to have you on the show. Um, so the other thing that we covered in that chapter <clears throat> was uh, the political system and how it's affected by money. And I remember telling people, you know, who it's like we're, we're being, it's being dangled in front of us. There's another George Carlin thing was where he said that, you know, the politicians are irrelevant. They're there to give you, you know, the belief that they're there. You, you have the illusion of choice. You know, you don't, you have owners, they own you, you know, they own the system. And they, and they create it, you know, like Peter said in Zeitgeist Addendum, now isn't it funny that, you know, right around election time, all of these previously unknown people are presented to you as your solutions, and, you know, and then that it just gets, it, you know, an ever-increasingly smaller list of very wealthy individuals are the ones that are given to you as options. And, you know, anybody who tries to get into that system who's poor doesn't have a hope in hell. You know, the entire system is designed to facilitate the people who have the, you know, the most at the top. And, you know, it's, we're kind of given these dog and pony shows that are the debates and the, you know, all the other things that the media does about our candidates. But you find that without fail, you know, that, that we have, like, the candidates who actually care about people are the ones who are marginalized the most, demonized even, outright, outright attacked you know, by the, by the, um, by the system. And it's, it's like if people who, and particularly those who are really into this idea that, you know, like let's run these candidates, maybe we'll win, you know, that's the deal. Let's just put a lot of energy behind Ron Paul or, or whatever. They don't recognize that that's kind of like, it's a trap. It's like, it's designed so that the, you know, the little resources that we have go to these campaigns that don't really lead anywhere. 
you know, there is a system, you know, in place for that. You can run as a candidate to try to get attention for your ideas. The Socialist Party does that. The Libertarian Party does that. The Green Party does that. You don't necessarily think you're going to win, but you do end up getting an audience for the open-minded people who really are looking for solutions out of the box. But overall, the notion that we're ever going to have any real democracy within a monetary system is an insult to our intelligence. Now, did you have any comment on that, Daniel? Um, well, other than the fact that... Um what the information we receive is filtered and it, it shapes our worldview. It's really not until you unplug yourself from it and really try to seriously get to the root cause of the problem. Um, it, it's really not that readily apparent. It's readily apparent if you're, if you're unplugged, but as long as you're plugged in, you're, you're going to get your information courtesy of, uh, you know, like I said, of major media, uh, major media outlets. You know, anytime we're listening to the news, we have to ask ourselves when we hear something, you know, is, is this really true? Is this information that they, they're just throwing out there because they want us to believe it? Uh, it's, you know, if we are watching mainstream news or reading mainstream news, we've got to do that with the filter and just knowing that a lot of this information just may, may, may be misdirection. Like like last night when they were running the thing about the the New York City and Times Square, uh, you know it may or may not not be true that there was a car there with explosives, uh, or it may be something that they were just running because they they needed to hype up the fear level. Uh, you know who knows if they're true. They've done so many of these uh, false flag things that that uh, you know. We, we just have no way of knowing this stuff. That thought occurred to me as well, Jack. I, I mean, it's sad to, to even have to remotely entertain that, but I thought that exact same thing. And that's actually uh, interesting. Is that, you know, that's actually what clicked into my head, too. It was like, well, even if it is real, the only reason they're making such a big deal out of it is it continues to justify the, you know, the people's willingness to give up their rights you know, and privileges and you know, things like that. You know, just in the, you know, whether even if it's not false flag, even let's say, because you know, 9-11 always ends up coming into situations like this, and I don't want to get into all that, but let's say even if it's not false flag, the big emphasis and what ends up getting done based on those things is where the danger really lies. You know, like if you watch the movie No End in Sight, they reveal that they were asked to try to find a connection between Iraq and 9-11 and, and, and Al-Qaeda, and they simply couldn't find one. And that wasn't, like, you know, one of the good things about that documentary is that they're not talking to just, like, conspiracy theorists or whatever. They're talking to people who worked in the Pentagon at the time. And, you know, but that's the, that's the way it was spun. You know, it was spun to become something that would be profitable to somebody else. And that's why you have to be careful about stuff like that. Now, um, Joel, did you have any comment? Joel? He might be muted. Yeah, he's probably still muted. Oh, Joel. Did we lose him? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Neil. I, I said <laughs> the room for a minute. No problem. Don't worry about it. Yeah. No. What did you ask? We were basically talking about how, uh, you know, the, the media is, is not very trustworthy. And, you know, when incidents come up, like we were talking about that uh, that situation recently with that, that bomb and that, that, you know, that car or whatever and how they make such a big deal out of it. You know, that there, there might be some kind of, like, you have to kind of filter things that you see in the media because you never know if it's part of some greater agenda. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Do you have an opinion about that? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Well, thanks a lot. Um, We're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But basically, this is one of the things that was covered in this chapter. We were talking about how the political system is a joke. We went over that. Um, We're talking about how the media system was owned by, uh, bought and paid for. We were talking about how that also affects the political system. It's like... uh, you know, one of the major things that chooses candidates is the debate. People watch the debates, and that's how they determine who they're going to vote for. And because of that, they make sure that none of, you know, third parties are almost never invited to debate. The only, the only like, prime example of that being um, overridden was when you had a guy like Ross Perot that you couldn't ignore because he was a millionaire. You know, you, you couldn't get away with ignoring that guy. But, like, it, it, with very few exceptions, you know, what will generally happen is one of two things. Either somebody from one of the major parties will just simply refuse to participate in a debate that has people with third-party candidates in it, which is what happened here in my run run for Congress. The Democrats showed up, the Green Party person showed up, and I as Libertarian showed up. The incumbent did not show up because she really had nothing to gain. You know, it, it would actually be a detriment to her to include us. You know, and, and to me, that actually looks like more of a sign of, oh, okay, so what are you hiding? But to the average person, they're not even going to pay attention. And it was funny because I've never even seen you know, – she even managed to snub the Democrats. She refuses to debate him and has never debated him in the several years that he's tried to take the seat. And that's how they keep these outside-of-the-box ideas from ever being heard. And it, it, it self-perpetuates the system overall. So you know, another thing, Jack, that came to my head was um, – you know, I know you talked about consensus. How do you feel about direct democracy systems like referendums? In our current, in our current uh, democracy, yes, or republic, um, uh, you know, I feel like to put any, you know, if if it produces some change that that can be for the highest good, like um, you know, uh, the equal rights for marriage that we've tried to get get passed. You know, that they can be steps in the right direction. And I think the faster way to get to all these results, again, is to create a demonstration community on the level of about 3,000 people, which would be enough to get noticed and have the media report on it and have celebrities get behind it and drive the message out there of we can create a world that, that works for everyone. I think it's far more effective than anything that we could do through a referendum process. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a step in the right direction, but, yeah, I see where you're coming from for sure. Um, I sort of, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I sort of visualize the materialization of this as um, somehow sort of being something like a reality TV show, which it, it sounds base to make that suggestion if you're, if you're trying to detach yourself from that, but it seems like the – culture that we have today, the seeds of this sort of thing has to be planted with that kind of a medium. Did that make any sense? Yes, it did. Um, I see where you're coming from. It's funny that we have to make a reality TV show about something that's based in reality. But, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we have a, a question now from the, uh, from the chat room. Uh, he wants to ask, uh, Jack, how, uh, Jack, how long have you been at this, and what kind of progress have you seen in Community Planet? 
And what is your 10-year goal? I thought about this when I was uh, 15 years old back in 1961. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, after reading a book, and, and I saw that this was the one thing that could change everything else. And uh, so that's how long I've been at it. What we're currently doing is uh, we're based here in Santa Barbara. We're looking for land where we can get the zoning option of doing this. I'm currently working on something about that um, because the zoning laws are, you know, one parcel, one house, one parcel, one house. The idea of people collectively owning a piece of property and doing the the housing in in clusters and and having the rest of the land available for agriculture for um, keeping as part of nature for it being a pedestrian community these are ideas that the typical planning departments are like what but there are certain uh, counties where they're excited about these kinds of ideas because they don't want, uh, you know, their counties to turn into urban sprawl. So it's a matter of finding those supportive places to do that. And of course, making the connections uh, with, with people who have the resources to make this happen. One of the things we're doing that we're excited about right now is that a, um, a group of people who we're connected with have a biofuels and biosoils technology where they can take all the trash from a city and turn it into biofuels and biosoils as opposed to it going into landfills, which is an increasing problem because they're, they're, you know, they're always challenged on where they can find the place to dump all the trash from the city. So to be able to produce energy and soil is, is a tremendous moon. So this person uh, who has this technology has said if we can get this started, that it could be the cash cow to fund the, uh, the creation of the community, provide uh, an you know, a, a ongoing source of income for the community, and then to be able to create other communities in other areas because there are so many municipalities who are challenged with this trash disposal problem. So that's one of the things we're working on. We're, we're just, you know, I was once asked on a, um, on a talk show, how much money would it take to create this? And I was not prepared for the question, so I gave some sort of <laughs> inane answer by coming up with a, with a figure. But the real answer is it would take just one connection. That's what it would take to make this happen. Somebody who cares enough about the planet, who has the resources that could say, let's make this happen. Now, um, one of the listeners asked you, because you said you, you, you had read a book. Do you, do you remember what book it was that it influenced your decision on this, like pushed you in that direction? The book was, I think, called something like Lemuria, the Lost Continent of the, of the Pacific. And one of the chapters described community life in Lemuria. Hmm. Okay. That's actually something that kind of hinted into one of my own questions. Uh, um, it also said, great answer. Thank you, Jack. I look forward to you coming on again. 
Um, now, uh, every one of these great thinkers generally had some kind of background that was, you know, that was different. Like, was there something different maybe about your parents, or, or did you have a mentor or something that helped you think outside the box? Um, I had a situation that helped me think outside the box. Um, my my family were were conservative Republicans, so let's not go there for mentorship in terms of these ideas. Right, right. But when I was, uh, I think about 13 or 14 years old, I was visiting, my two brothers and I were visiting my aunt and uncles, and my two brothers and my two cousins and I were sleeping out in the backyard on cots, having a conversation as kids do, laying on our backs, looking up, and at fairly close range, a UFO came right over us and hovered over us and then slowly went back in the direction that it had come, completely noiselessly. My cousin was so scared he wouldn't sleep outside the rest of the summer. Uh, the rest, the, the other people were there. This was obviously not for them. It was for me. And from that point, I started reading everything I could about UFOs, which led me into reading about uh, the New Age, which led me on a, on a whole quest, and that eventually got me reading about Atlantis, Lemuria, and it was that book on Lemuria that Go ahead. That, uh, that, uh, um, caused, that caused me to start thinking about how we could have a world that could work for everyone. Well, we're now down to the last 90 seconds of the show. Um, I want to thank you, Jack, for coming on. Obviously, the, the listeners really liked having you on. I hope we can have you online later. Um, Love to. And uh, thank you, Joel, for being on, and thank you also, Daniel, for being on. Was it as tough as you thought it would be? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a no. Um, once again, everybody, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Uh, I'm hoping to be able to do a lot more shows this month. As I said, there's some things going on at home that are really taking up a lot of my time. In fact, as soon as the show is over, I'm pretty much going to have to get back to them. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward. I look forward to you know getting more out of the, uh, these future shows about the subject of the, the, the communityplanet.org. Um, and uh, thanks again, everybody. And uh, you make V Radio possible. Visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. And um, it's been a great show. Take care. Thank you. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. Okay.